Unlock this podcast with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both entertainment and knowledge, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Imagineer Podcast. Disney's MGM Studios 1994. Amid the glitz and the glitter of a bustling young Disney theme park just entering the height of its golden age, the Hollywood Tower Hotel was a star in its own right, a beacon for thrill-seekers around the globe. Now, a podcast is about to happen that will tell you all about that. Tonight's story of the Imagineer podcast is somewhat unique and calls for a different kind of introduction. This, as you may recognize, is an attraction podcast episode, available for download, waiting for you. We invite you, if you dare, to listen in, because in this episode, Tower of Terror is the star. In this episode travels directly to the Twilight Zone. And welcome to the Imagineer Podcast, your unofficial guide to all things Disney. I'm your host, Matthew Krull, and you're listening to episode 45 of the Imagineer Podcast. In today's episode, I'm so excited to be talking about an attraction that I have waited quite a while to discuss, and that is the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror over at Disney's Hollywood Studios. It's one of the attractions I honestly get the most requests to discuss, and I'm happy to share with you today some history, fun facts, details you might not have noticed before about the Tower of Terror. I'll also include in this episode a binaural ride-through of the attraction, so if you've never been on the attraction before, or if you want to listen back and feel like you're back at Disney's Hollywood Studios, we'll ride Tower of Terror together, we'll walk through the queue, enjoy the pre-show, the boiler room, the attraction, the exit, so that you really get the full experience. At the end of the show, I'll come back and tell you a little bit more about how you can connect with the Imagineer podcast on all of our social media channels and how you can help to inspire and create the future of this show. So grab some headphones, pull up your favorite armchair, and enjoy this episode of the Imagineer podcast.
Twilight Zone Tower of Terror opened its doors at the then-called Disney's MGM Studios on July 22nd, 1994. This drop ride broke several records for Disney and became the signature e-ticket attraction at the studios. When it was built, Tower of Terror was the tallest attraction at Walt Disney World, standing at 199 feet tall. Today, it's the second largest attraction, or the second tallest attraction at the resort, just six inches shy of Expedition Everest Legend of the Forbidden Mountain over at Disney's Animal Kingdom, which is 190 feet and six inches tall, just beats Tower of Terror by half a foot. Believe it or not, the original idea for Tower of Terror began when the Imagineers were looking to design a drop ride attraction based on Jules Verne's journey to the center of the earth at Euro Disney, which is now called Disneyland Paris. Now, the attraction, of course, was never built, and the Imagineers borrowed the concept when trying to design a new thrill ride for, again, what was called Disney's MGM Studios. Before landing on the Twilight Zone, though, the Imagineers did have a few additional horror concepts in mind, including a ride based on Stephen King's novels, a ghost tour starring Vincent Price, and even a Mel Brooks horror comedy attraction that's reminiscent of the movie Young Frankenstein. Inevitably, the Imagineers landed on the Twilight Zone as their final point of inspiration and acquired the licensing rights from CBS to incorporate this series into the attraction. And thankfully, Disney fans around the world are so happy with the result. And I would even say that the revival of the new Twilight Zone series on CBS is going to drive even more visitors to Disney's Hollywood Studios to enjoy the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. Now this attraction of course takes guests through an abandoned Hollywood Tower Hotel and into the fifth dimension on a thrill ride that pays tribute to Rod Serling's classic anthology. The ride has quickly become a classic and is still one of the best attractions that Walt Disney Imagineering has ever built. And much of that has to do with the level of detail that the Imagineers contributed to this ride. And as I've mentioned in other podcast episodes, part of the Disney difference is the way that the Imagineers use rich storytelling uh, to inspire all the design elements for any attraction. And Tower of Terror, honestly, is no exception here. Uh, so to really kick things off, what I'd love to do is just take a moment to share with you the backstory of this classic ride. Because as far as backstories go, the Tower of Terror has probably one of the richest backstories in terms of detail. And that's part of the reason why people come to love this attraction. So I know on the surface, you might think you know a lot about the ride, but believe it or not, there's again, a very rich history to it. A lot of things that you would never even notice riding the attraction. So let me tell you a little bit about the story. So the 1930s, it was the height of Hollywood's golden age, a time when classic movies like The Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, and of course, Snow White, uh, Walt Disney's feature-length animated film, uh, were setting these new standards for filmmakers and movie fans around the globe. And at the center of Hollywood's heart and soul stood the Hollywood Tower Hotel, a place where the Hollywood elite would go to see, and more importantly to them, to be seen. 
As Rod Serling would say, the Hollywood Tower Hotel was a star in its own right. It's featuring bold geometric architecture that combines Southwest and Moroccan design, this upscale hotel on Sunset Boulevard was a shining star, a place as grand and extravagant as the celebrities who stayed there. And throughout the late 1930s, it seemed like nothing could get better for this hotel, and in many ways, was a metaphor for the golden age of Tinseltown, which is the reason why they placed it on Sunset Boulevard in a park devoted to the Hollywood that never was and always will be. Of course, all of that changed dramatically on October 31st, 1939, when four hotel guests and one staff member mysteriously disappeared. It was a tragedy unlike any that Hollywood had ever seen, and it all took place during a spectacular Halloween party that would have soon become the setting for a spectacular wedding proposal. The venue for this event was the lavish Tip Top Club on the tower's 13th floor. The party was so festive and the band so resounding that evening that you could barely hear the approaching thunderstorm, and I think it's safe to say the guests didn't have much of an idea that a storm was approaching. It's also kind of weird for LA for there to be a thunderstorm. Now, late to the party that Halloween night were four guests, the youngest of whom was Sally Shine. Sally was the world's favorite child movie star and was adored by many around the globe. She was sweet, she was full of hope, and she helped pave the way for future child celebrities like Shirley Temple, and in many ways is very reminiscent of uh, childhood celebrities like Shirley Temple. And on the night of the incident, Sally was being watched over by her headstrong nanny, Emmeline Partridge, who cared dearly for Sally and helped to keep unruly fans out of arm's reach. Also late to the party that evening was Caroline Crossan, a beautiful, aspiring actress uh, who had a future in show business that was as bright as she was. And she was accompanied by Gilbert London, a friend of Caroline's who was planning to propose to her that very evening, which would have turned the party into a uh, more of an engagement celebration. And working the elevator that night was bellhop Dewey Todd Jr. What I love about this is he's the son of Dewey Todd Sr. who built the Hollywood Tower Hotel. Dewey Jr., he was hardworking, he was this inconspicuous staff member, and he was just simply trying to work his way up in the family business. Now, although the evening was as beautiful and as amazing as the hotel itself, like I said, there was this ominous storm that just seemed to virtually appear out of nowhere on the horizon, and it was quickly making its way towards Hollywood. Around the same time that the storm was approaching, Sally, Emmeline, Caroline, and Gilbert were making their way through the beautiful lobby to one of the hotel elevators. Of course, Dewey Jr. was operating the elevator that evening. He waited for his guests to board and flipped the switch to take them up to the 13th floor. Unfortunately, the elevator never made it all the way up. And on their journey toward the top, lightning suddenly struck the tower's elevator shaft, sending the elevator plunging uncontrollably back down to the lobby and causing two wings of the hotel to suddenly vanish. So what happened to the five victims? What happened to those missing parts of the hotel? Why did they disappear? Unfortunately, there's no official answer to this question and little evidence remains of what really happened that night. Within minutes of the crash, Dewey Todd Sr., the owner of the hotel, closed the hotel for investigation and asked for everyone to vacate the tower. Many guests left their belongings behind, and while many expected the, Ho the Hollywood Tower Hotel to reopen its doors, it unfortunately never did. The gates remained locked for decades, long past Dewey Sr.'s lifetime, and the bodies of the victims, well, they were never found. It's said 
that the soul of the victims never fully transitioned to the other side and that their spirits still haunt the hotel halls, forever trapped inside and never able to make their way to the 13th floor. Not many have dared to venture inside and the once bright Hollywood Tower Hotel eventually became a shadow hiding in the background of Tinseltown. Then, one day decades later, something mysterious happened. People began to report that they heard music coming from the tower and that the hotel had mysteriously reopened. Though still dilapidated and dusty, guests began to venture inside and find bellhops waiting to take them to their rooms. Oddly enough, the hotel looked exactly as it did on October 31st, 1939. Luggage remained in the exact same place where it was left, uh, chairs remained toppled over, and a game of mahjong remained completely unfinished. Additionally, the main elevator was never fixed, and you can still find the doors pried open in an attempt to save the five victims of the incident. Don't worry though, reports say that the bellhops are ready to take guests to their rooms through one of the hotel's maintenance service elevators. Might not be as welcoming as a regular service elevator, but they'll certainly take you to your destination. And today, you now have the choice to venture down Sunset Boulevard and walk through the gates of the Hollywood Tower Hotel. Don't let those echoing screams fool you though, we know that the hotel guests are delighted to be there. Will you be so bold as to drop in for a visit to this once majestic hotel, or are you afraid that once you check in, you might never want to check out? Now that you know the full story of the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, I'm sure you're probably beginning to see how all the pieces of the attraction play a purpose in telling the story. Now from the second you enter the queue to the moment you exit the gift shop, you are part of the mystery that is unfolding. And in fact, the story begins even sooner than the queue. It starts the moment you turn the corner onto Sunset Boulevard and find the hotel casting its shadow at the opposite end of the street. The first clue to the attraction story is the ominous appearance in the distance and the charred discoloration from the lightning strike. More impressive than that though is this really subtle clue that perhaps is one of my favorite details. The next time you turn down Sunset Boulevard, stop at the entrance of Legends of Hollywood and turn to your right. Now this is gonna be just past the back of where that Starbucks location is right now. And hidden behind the trees, you're gonna find this old billboard for the Hollywood Tower Hotel. It's a sign that looks like it hasn't been updated or removed since 1939 and it's just forgotten. It's just been left there. And that right there is the Imagineers just sort of weaving the story ever so subtly into the backstory of Sunset Boulevard. And it's your first clue that the Hollywood Tower Hotel has not been opened for business in decades. Because if that's the last billboard that was ever posted, there's a good chance that it hasn't been opened since. Of course, as you approach the building, you get more clues about the story. You suddenly begin to see the age details of the building and the fact that the elevator doors are somehow out in the open air, where the old wings that disappeared used to be. And more ominous than the doors is the fact that they open, revealing the sound of screams that you can hear echoing down Sunset Boulevard. And not only does this help clue you into the experience ahead, but it also is a technique that Imagineers use to attract guests to an attraction. It's a tradition that actually began with Walt Disney himself. And if you go back and look at the history of when Walt was designing Disneyland, he coined this term called a weenie, which is either a visual cue or a sound cue that attracts you to something. So. 
In this case, the screams of the Tower of Terror and the building are two of those features that attract you to the attraction. Of course, as you enter the queue, you're brought through the hotel gardens and given the chance to observe the building really up close. And here, we are given more clues that the building has been abandoned for nearly a century. If you really peer up at the building, you'll notice that all of the windows are locked and all of the drapes are closed. There's no way to look inside. At night, if you're looking at the tower from the phantasmic area, you'll also see a silhouette in one of the windows that looks like it could either be the shadow of a vase or a mysterious figure. It's a subtle detail that most guests never see because it is from a very specific angle, but it's one that adds a lot more intrigue to the tower's story. As you get closer to the building, you begin to hear the sounds of music coming from the hotel, although the hotel never installed any speakers to play the music. And in fact, the music, we talk about this in episode 42, plays a really key role in providing the tone for the attraction. First of all is the choice of songs that you'll hear, all of which were famous in the mid to late 1930s. This provides evidence that the music played coincides with the timing of the 1939 disaster. Second is the way that the music and the songs are played. If you listen to the original versions of these tunes and you look them up, they're mostly played at this slightly faster pace with a more cheery melody, whereas the songs in the Tower of Terror cue are played slower and with a more dreary tone, which is really meant to give you this feeling of dread. And last, but not least, the music is played with an echo and reverberation effect, which is meant to give you the feeling that perhaps the band is playing at the Tip Top Club at, in 1939 and that they never really left and that the memories are still haunting the hotel and are forever playing the music at the party. Or another way to interpret this is that the music is being echoed from the past into the present. I love the details in not just the songs that they play, but the way that they play the music. As you enter the lobby, it gets very clear that the hotel has been abandoned for a very long time. Although it certainly looks like it had a grand history, the lobby's now covered in cobwebs and dust, the carpets and paint are faded, uh, the walls are cracked and rotting, and there are signs of the hotel's abrupt ends, including a mahjong game that never ended, luggage that's left at reception, and an old hat left at the concierge, and chairs turned in unkept positions, there's just so many details that are there. More ominous, of course, is the elevator doors, which are slightly bent open, and even look slightly burned or charred. Next to the elevator doors, I love this, there's a sign that has movable letters that you would see against the black, you know, white letters against black felt that you would see in a lot of uh, hotels and halls to tell you what the announcements are, sort of announcing the events of the hotel. If you pay close attention to some of the missing letters and scramble them around a bit, they actually spell out, Evil Tower, You Are Doomed. Most people will never notice that, but it is such a subtle detail that again, it's just one of those small things that paints the picture for the larger story that's at play. Before you can think to turn back, there's a friendly but eerie bellhop who's gonna invite you to venture into the lobby to await your room while it's still being prepared. When you enter the library, you'll notice that there's a new thunderstorm in the distance, sort of this ominous callback to Halloween night in 1939. Suddenly, lightning's going to strike nearby the tower, shut off the lights in the library, and mysteriously a TV's gonna turn on. 
the TV changes to an episode of The Twilight Zone, in which the narrator, Rod Serling, tells the story of the mysterious incident at the Hollywood Tower Hotel in 1939. While it might seem like an ordinary episode, the fact that you're standing in the very hotel where the disaster occurred really makes it seem like Rod Serling is talking to you directly. A few seconds later, the TV suddenly shuts off, the lights fade back to normal. Oddly enough, a back wall has opened, revealing a hidden door which leads you into the boiler room. There, you'll find yourself ready to board one of four maintenance service elevators. Unfortunately, it looks like the boiler room has not been attended to since 1939. An old boiler churns and the lights seem to flicker as if the building is just struggling to find the power it needs to operate the elevators. The voice of an old ghostly concierge shares the attraction's safety warnings. And it is then time to board the elevator, at which point you might ask a bellhop why you need to wear a seatbelt. Uh, the bellhop will probably answer back that there is nothing to worry about and it's just a normal service elevator. After the doors to the elevator close, you'll hear the voice of Rod Serling again and he begins to narrate the experience, another sign that we really are in an episode of The Twilight Zone. The elevator opens at our floor, at which point you'll come to face to face with the ghosts of the victims who perished in 1939. Seconds later, the ghosts vanish and thunder can be heard on our floor, and the effect itself is just a Pepper's Ghost effect that's used in the Haunted Mansion as well, sort of an evolved version of that, and it's a very cool trick. The lights dim, the hotel floor seems to mysteriously disappear. In a panic, the doors close and send us up to another floor. Now when the doors open, we find ourselves looking into a dark hallway that doesn't look at all like an ordinary hotel. A few seconds later, the elevator does something an elevator never should. It moves forward, truly sending us into the twilight zone. What's more unnerving is the fact that a new pair of elevator doors open in a place that an elevator shaft never was. We pause for just a few seconds, and then, of course, the elevator goes haywire. In a series of random sequences, the elevator rises and falls faster than gravity. Like the scene out of a nightmare, we find ourselves in an elevator that's totally out of control. We hear voices of the ghosts and other special effects, such as breaking window or ominous figures. And in a few minutes later, or a few moments later, I should say, we come crashing back down to the hotel basement, where Rod Serling closes our episode of The Twilight Zone, warning us that the next time you step into a deserted hotel on the dark side of Hollywood, make sure you know just what kind of vacancy you're filling. And once you disembark, you'll walk through a series of basement hotel hallways into the gift shop, passing some more signs of the deserted hotel. And one of my favorite details, which is this doll whose eyes seem to follow you around the room, which again is another Imagineering trick that was also used at the Haunted Mansion and still is used at the Haunted Mansion today. As you can probably tell, based on how much there is that I just discussed, the storyline and the details for Tower of Terror are so incredibly thought-provoking, and the engineering behind it, which I'm going to explain in a second, is equally impressive. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror was designed by Walt Disney Imagineering, but it also had a part in the design from Otis Elevator Company and Eaton Kenway. Now, specifically, Walt Disney Imagineering, they provided the major vision, the design elements for the attraction, a lot of those little subtle details about the, uh, the artwork, the architecture. Otis Elevator designed the vertical drop system and Eaton Kenway created the ride vehicles and along with the Imagineers, the horizontal motion system. 
Otis Elevator Company was particularly amused with the challenge of designing the ride because throughout the, his the company's history, their mission was to create elevator lifts that could efficiently carry passengers as smoothly as possible. And the Imagineers instead tasked their engineers with completely the opposite, to design an elevator system that would make the lift experience as stomach-dropping as possible. So it's a really funny story that Otis Elevator, again, they spend their entire career, the entire company history, trying to make elevators that it almost doesn't even feel like you're moving. And here come the Imagineers saying, no, we want to turn all that completely upside down and we want you to make it feel like as stomach-dropping as possible. Um, impressively, the entire attraction cost $140 million to build, and the ride drops a maximum of 130 feet, achieving a top speed of 30 mi 39 miles an hour in just one and a half seconds, accelerating 15 times the speed of a normal elevator, which is done by these giant motors that are at the top of the shaft. While most guests actually classify this attraction as a freefall ride, that's technically not true, since the lift system propels you faster than the speed of gravity. So it's not freefall, but technically, Tower of Terror is an accelerated drop tower dark ride. It's kind of a mouthful, but that's what it is, an accelerated drop tower dark ride. In the original version, the first version of Tower of Terror, the ride only featured one drop, and that was it. Then a few years later, the Imagineers redesigned the ride to drop twice, and they had a whole marketing campaign around that. In the modern version, which has been around for more than a decade, the ride is randomized uh, to feature a number of drops and lifts, and that adds an additional factor of fear and uncertainty to the experience. You don't know if you're gonna go up or down or how far you're gonna go down or when, and it just adds completely a new level of thrill to Tower of Terror. And as I mentioned, the ride vehicles were designed by Eaton Kenway, and they're called Automatic Guided Vehicles. They work very similar to the great movie ride or Ellen's Energy Adventure when that was still around. They follow a series of uh, grooves and wires along the floor, and a computer system uses these wires as a means of communicating instructions to the ride vehicle, telling it where to move next. The ride vehicles move into different elevator shafts, and then lock into place. So when you rise or drop, you're technically it's technically not the vehicle that's dropping, it's an elevator shaft that the vehicle is attached to. So again, when you go up in the beginning, you're in an the vehicle is in an elevator shaft, it then unlocks, positions itself into a new elevator shaft, and again, locks into place and then goes up and down there um, and then moves backwards out of that elevator shaft into the unload area. And speaking of elevators, there are a total of six elevator shafts on this attraction. There are four shafts in the back of the ride, which Disney calls Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, and Delta, A, B, C, and D, um, which bring riders up to the fifth dimension. Alpha and Bravo then converge to Echo, E, one of the attraction's front elevators, and Charlie and Delta converge to Foxtrot, F, which is Echo's neighbor. Now, Echo and Foxtrot are those famous elevator shafts that everybody sees out on Sunset Boulevard and sees all the riders screaming with their hands in the air or gripping their handbar as quick as tight as they can. Um, and those, again, are the two that are in the front of the building. Um, now, while the Florida version was built, uh, was the first to be built, you can find the Tower of Terror um, and different versions of it at different Disney parks around the world, including Disneyland California, Disneyland Paris, and Tokyo Disney Sea. The Florida structure, though, is very unique in its design, while the other three are mostly copies of each other, containing only three elevator shafts and six independent load and unload areas that are on two separate floors. 
In their current versions, as of 2019, only Florida and Paris follow the Twilight Anthology, though. California's attraction was rethemed back in 2017 to the Guardians of the Galaxy in this reimagined ride of, uh, or this reimagined version of the same type of attraction. And Tokyo's version has has always followed this completely different storyline. Honestly, it is worthy of its own podcast episode. I'll probably talk about it in the future, but because the Twilight Zone is not that popular in Japan, they chose an entirely different route for this Tower of Terror. Same exact type of ride, but totally different story. It's probably one of the most detailed uh, backstories, just like this backstory is, but just a totally different uh, theme. So I'll have to cover it in a future episode of the show. And if you're interested in hearing about it, definitely send me that feedback um, to let me know you'd like to hear it sooner than later. Now, I know I've said a lot, but one last thing I will share with you about the design of Tower of Terror at Disney's Hollywood Studios is the architecture. When Imagineers were designing this attraction, they realized that the height of the building would make it visible from different parts of Walt Disney World because it is 199 feet tall. Most notably, the attraction would be very visible, very easily visible behind the Morocco Pavilion at Epcot if you were to stand near the Mexico Pavilion. Fortunately, Imagineers are geniuses, so they came up with this really clever idea to incorporate Moroccan-style architecture into the tower. And fortunately, this is something that was very common in 1930s Hollywood, to have this very similar type of architecture. So to this day, if you stand near the Mexico Pavilion at Epcot and peer over to the Morocco Pavilion, you can clearly see Tower of Terror hidden in the background of the Morocco Pavilion skyline. Most guests will not notice it, but if you do pay attention, you can very easily see it there. And imagine if it was a totally different theme, a totally different architecture, it would be an eyesore behind the Morocco Pavilion. But this is just one example of what makes Walt Disney Imagineering so incredible, they consider every single detail. So needless to say, the Tower of Terror remains to this day one of the best attractions that Walt Disney Imagineering has ever created. So much so that it takes me, again, about 20 minutes to talk to you about all the details, uh, all of the engineering and the history and the story. And honestly, there are so many details that I couldn't even cover in this episode because it would have been over an hour long. Maybe I'll do a part two at some point. But now that you know the basics, you've heard some of the uh, information about this attraction. I'd love to take you with me for a ride on Tower of Terror. If you've never been on it before, I imagine this will be a really exciting experience for you. And if you have been on it before and perhaps it's your favorite ride, you're going to get to relive what it's like to ride the Tower of Terror. So like most other audio recordings that I do, this is a binaural 360 degree audio experience. So if you wear over the ear headphones or in-ear earbuds, you're going to get the best 360 degree audio experience. But as always, don't worry if you're listening on speakers or listening in your car, you'll still get a great 360 degree audio experience in there as well. So let's head over to Tower of Terror and enjoy this attraction through binaural audio.
sure. Maybe.
Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the twilight zone.
close out episode 45 of the Imagineer podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Like I said, it is an episode that I have heard requested so often. So many people have been asking me to do a Tower of Terror episode, and I am so happy to be able to share more information with you about the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. But of course, I want to hear from you. What do you think about the Hollywood Tower Hotel? Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, and perhaps even if you've been to the other versions around the world at Disneyland Paris, Tokyo Disney Sea, or Disneyland California, I want to hear what you have to say about those attractions, perhaps what your favorite detail is, or what you love the most about any of the Tower of Terrors around the world. As always, you can send me your feedback in so many different ways. You can either reach out to me on Facebook and Instagram at Imagine Your Podcast. Feel free to share your thoughts in your Instagram story in a post uh, through direct message uh, through a post on Facebook. You can also share your thoughts in our Facebook group, which is the Imagine Your Podcast Disney fan community. You could find that either by going to facebook.com slash groups slash Imagine Your Podcast or going to facebook.com slash Imagine Your Podcast and clicking on the community tab, which will take you over to that Facebook group. You can also send me your feedback on Twitter. I'm at Imagine Your Audio. You can send me a message through 
a tweet or through a direct message there as well. Or if you want to send me an email, I do read in each, each and every email, which you can send to imagineerpodcast at gmail.com. Last but not least, because I like to give you as many ways as possible to share your feedback, you can also send me a voicemail at the Imagineer Podcast listener hotline, which you, which you can dial by calling 516-406-8376. I'll put that number in the show notes below as well. But if you want to hear your voice in a future episode of the Imagineer podcast, you can call me there and leave your feedback through a voice message. And again, I will play it on a future episode of the Imagineer podcast. If you don't already subscribe to the show, you can find us in so many different podcast apps. So go to your favorite podcast app, whether that is iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Podcast, or any other podcast app out there. You'll probably find us there. If there's a podcast app that we're not currently uh, on that app or that channel, please feel free to reach out to me. I would love to see what that channel is and perhaps add the podcast there as well. But again, no matter where you listen, would love for you to hit that subscribe button. And I also want to thank a few folks who did leave a few five-star reviews on iTunes, which is another place that helps us to grow our community. I got a lot of great feedback after episode 42, so I do want to share some of these five-star reviews. The first one comes from Lauren Meisner, who says, for Disney fanatics, what a fun pod. I jumped in on the Dark Rides episode. As a former cast member, I really enjoy these Disney conversations, especially with some facts and history sprinkled in. Lauren, thank you so much. I definitely do what I can to teach you a little bit about the backstories of the attractions and the parks and try to make it as fun as I possibly can at the same time. Uh, have another five-star review that came in from Anthony Ellis. who says, love this, five stars. Hey, it's Anthony. Hey, Anthony. I love this podcast and how much you put into all of your accounts. Keep it up. Anthony, I certainly will. And uh, thank you, Anthony, for being such a, a great um friend to the Imagineer podcast. I know you especially have a so far a perfect attendance record with our Instagram lives over on Instagram. So uh, thanks for the five-star review as well. And then I have another five-star review that comes from CMK Disney, who says, so good, Walt would endorse it. That alone means a lot, by the way. Um, Missing WDW, immediately subscribe to this podcast. There is great content, great guests, and, and, that's what he says. And 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 you'll spend every minute thinking about all of those things you love about Disney. This is a rare gem. Your Disney vibes will be validated and you'll learn things that you didn't know. I know, right? But it's absolutely the best. First of all, CMK Disney, I love the way you wrote that review. But more importantly, I love what you had to say. And thank you so much again for leaving that review. And the fact that you think it's so good, Walt would endorse it really means a, a lot to me. Um, for those of you who are listening, if you have not yet had the chance to rate and review the show, like I said, it does so much to help our podcast to grow, especially in iTunes. And I do want to thank those of you who have left your feedback in a review on iTunes. So thank you so very much for doing so. And if you would like to help us to spread the word, that's probably the best thing you can do for the Imagine Your Podcast to help our community to grow. So whether you share out your favorite podcast episode or the podcast as a whole, or even your favorite post from our Facebook or Instagram, that does so much to help our podcast community to continue to grow. Um, So whether you share out your favorite episode or the podcast as a whole on Instagram stories, on an Instagram post, Facebook post, Facebook stories, Twitter, email, text message, phone call, in person, whatever you do to help spread the word, 
about the Imagine Your Podcast. It does so much. And I am so thankful for all of you who have continued to share the podcast. Again, it means so very much to me and helps our community to continue to grow uh, and get some new Disney friends to join this amazing group. Uh, and I also want to give, as always, a special shout out to our VIPs over at patreon.com slash podcast who are helping to support the show financially each and every month. If you would like to learn more about ways that you can help to support the Imagine Your Podcast financially, help us get to new heights and new levels, uh, and also get some exclusive rewards and content in return, head to patreon.com slash podcast or click on the link in the show notes. That'll take you over there where you can learn how even just a dollar a month, you can get some exclusive rewards and help this community uh, to continue to grow. As always, I want to remind you that it is always possible to achieve your dreams. I hope you are doing everything you possibly can to make a happier, better life for yourself, to go after your goals, whatever those goals might be, taking one step at a time or a giant leap to making your dreams come true. Remember, as always, that quote from Horizons, if you can dream it, you can do it. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in a future episode of the Imagineer Podcast. Dummy.